Have you ever heard of a smoot? S-M-O-O-T? A smoot is a unit of measurement of length that is exactly five feet seven inches. In 1958, a flat pledge, five foot seven, Oliver Smoot agreed to be used as a measure as these frat boys measured the Harvard Bridge. After repeatedly lying down on the bridge, having his position marked in chalk each time, they figured the bridge was 364.4 smoots long. It's been said, been claimed that Google will now let you order links in smoots. How about a moment? When someone says, I'll be with you in a moment, or you tell someone, it will just take me a moment. A moment, in fact, was a measure of time. Back in uh, early days, uh, in medieval times, it's roughly equivalent to one and a half minutes. Some of you will be familiar with the Scoville scale. The Scoville scale is used to measure the capsaicin in chilies. Now, why would someone want to measure the capsaicin in chilies. Well, the fact is, if you took a bite of the wrong one, you would have very bad next moments in your life. They have determined that the pimento rates 100 to 500, a cayenne pepper 30,000 to 50,000, the Carolina Reaper, 1 million, and law enforcement pepper spray up to 5 million. When it comes to this world that God gave mankind, we've been really creative in how we have learned our measurements. We measure height and length in terms of inches and yards and some people meters. We weigh objects in pounds and ounces and we divide time in millennia all the way to nanoseconds, one billionth of one second. And the list could go on and on about the creativity of mankind in learning to keep order and measurement in this world God gave us. However, when it comes to understanding how God measures us, we can't afford to be creative. we got to be right. How he determines our fitness for the kingdom of God now, there are other ways and other concepts uh, to explain and categorize the way the world understands God and his determination, his measurement of us. 
But for me, the best one is the scale, the giant scale. On this scale, the world's concept is that you balance your good deeds against your bad deeds. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you get to go to heaven. But if the scale tips in the evil direction, then you'll probably go to, go to hell. What we are talking about is the world's theology of salvation. This is how the world understands who God is and his precepts on earth. The world's theology of salvation. This grand scale, evil deeds, good deeds. Now, we've talked about this briefly before, but I want to go into more detail to gain greater understanding. There are, in fact, some good, if not practical, reasons that the world, as opposed to the church, that the world sees God in that way. First of all, it's simply logical. Everything in our world is based upon uh, good and evil. Everything in our world is based upon behavior and consequences. You play, you pay. You do the crime, you do the time. You offend, you try to make amends. Even the Bible says in Galatians 6, 7 that God will not be mocked. That whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. So there's a logic to the reason that the world sees God and understands his salvation in these balanced scale terms. There's also an intuitive component to it. Every person knows down in their heart of hearts that evil lurks. We know we've lied. We know we've stolen. We know we've cheated. We know we've disparaged our neighbor. We know our tongues are a fire set aflame by the fire of hell. We know these things to be true down deep in our hearts. And even more than that, we know that God knows that we know that real evil lurks within us. When I was pastoring the First Baptist Church in Whitesboro, Texas, I heard about a singing group from the Buster Cole State Jail. These were inmates who had created a Christian band, and they were 
being allowed to go to different churches to perform. And so I called and wanted them to come to Whitesboro. And we had a full group that night, uh, and they were really good. But the thing I will never forget is the first thing that the leader of the group said to the congregation. He came up, and I, you know, they were in their prison suits, and it was obvious that they were different and separated from us. They knew the perception that the congregation had about them, and so he stepped forward and he said, Look, we're just like you. We've done the things you've done, and you've done the things we've done. We just got caught. And I looked around and heads were nodding up and down. We know. There is an intuitive awareness that there is good and there is evil. And that we have done evil. And because we have done evil, we've got to balance the scales. The sentiment usually comes out like this. I really want to be a better person. I want to try harder. So they go through all kinds of self-help regimes trying to do good to balance the scale of evil. But not only is there a logical component or intellectual component and an intuitive component, but there's also a spiritual component to it. I think despite what people say that they know, they know that there has to be some type of judgment that comes, that follows death. I mean, the fact is, we are not all the same. We look around the world, we read our history, and there haven't been that many genocidal maniacs like Hitler. Not, not, a, not a person likely you know would ever give a second thought to setting off a bomb in the midst of a gathered crowd. Yes, there is evil, and wrong is wrong, but there is a sliding scale to badness. And so people make different choices, live different lives. People embrace evil at different levels. So there's got to be some type of personal judgment. It, it can't be a judgment uh, for everybody. There's got to be some type of personal verdict, separate rulings, by the creator judge. So again, what we see when the creator God judging the world is the world's theology of salvation. How the world believes they can get to heaven. 
And though, again, there's rationale behind it, the thing that they are missing is this. God's salvation is relational. God, the being creator, is relational. He is neither pure logic nor exclusively emotional. He is simply I am. He is who he is. He is God, and he gets to set the rules. And it was this creator God, this ultimate ruler, this judge of the universe, it was this creator God who said in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be scarlet, they can become white as snow. Though they are crimson, they can become like wool. At the time of Isaiah's writing, the southern nation of Judah was in a state of national crisis. Ahaz, their horrible, wicked king, was an idolater and led Judah in rebellion against God. And we will read in in a few moments of all of their sins and God's uh, deep anger against them and their continued rebellion against him. And yet, in the middle of it, storms in the love of the Father. And he says to them, despite everything, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your turning away from me, come. Let's get this thing settled. Though your sins be as dark as night, they can be washed white as the day. Before we get to this great invitation in verse 18. Let's get some context because the first part is grave indignation. In Isaiah 2 through 4, there is the declaration of God. He says, listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But my people don't recognize my care for them. What a sinful nation they are. Loaded down with a burden of guilt, they are evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and they've turned their backs on him. We move now into the desperation of the land in verses 5 through 9. God says, why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? 
Your head is injured. Your heart is sick. You are battered from head to foot, covered with bruises, welts, infected wounds, without any soothing ointments or bandages. Your country lies in ruins. Your towns are burned. And foreigners have plundered your fields before your eyes and destroyed everything they see. Beautiful Jerusalem stands abandoned like a watchman's shelter in a vineyard, like a lean-to in a cucumber field after the harvest, like a helpless city under siege. If the armies of the Lord, if the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of us, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. He continues this rant, this uh, message of indignation uh, with the duplicity of the people in verses 10 through 15. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of, quote, Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, said the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of your fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asks you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. And for your celebration, new moon and the Sabbath, and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. And then in verses 16 and 17, he demands a change. He says, wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice Help the oppressed, defend the cause of the, orson, the orphans, and fight for the rights of widows. So God is building his case against his people. He has threatened them. He has challenged them. And now... Despite everything they've done, all the pain they've caused themselves and God, despite it all, he comes to verse 18 and he says, just gather with me now. Come to me now and we'll get this thing settled. Draw near, near to me that I can tell you my heart and my 
love for you. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will become white as snow. Though crimson, blood-stained, they will become white like wool. This is what the world doesn't understand. It's the story of the prodigal son. The father, come back. I'm waiting for you. Come back. It's the story of Hosea and Gomer who loved his wife, though a prostitute, and bought her back. It is the redemption and relationship of God. They don't, the world doesn't understand this. This is what they won't comprehend. This is why they want to work to balance their own scale. Here God is inviting them to come, to draw near to him, but they have no idea that salvation is a relationship. I found this story about John MacArthur, and I want to share it with you. I'm just going to read it verbatim because it's a conversation that he had with a passenger uh, as he was flying to a Bible conference. MacArthur said, I was flying to El Paso to do a men's conference, and I was working on some thoughts, and I had my Bible open in the seat. I was sitting next to an Arab man. He kept glancing over and looking at what I was doing. Finally, he said, May I ask you a question, sir? I'm from Iran, and I'm new in America, and I see you have a Bible. I don't understand American religion. What is the difference between a Catholic, a Protestant, and a Baptist? MacArthur said, I gave him a little explanation, but then I said, could I ask you a question? Do Muslims have sins? He said, of course, I knew that they did. I just wanted to hear him say it. He said, oh, we have many sins, so many sins. I don't even know all the sins. Really, MacArthur asked? Can I ask you another question then? Do you do those sins? Do you do those sins? All the time, he said, I do those sins. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I'm flying to El Paso right now to do some sins. MacArthur, do you mind if I ask what sins you're going to do in El Paso? He said, well, I was immigrating, and El Paso was a big immigration location, and I met this girl, and I'm going to El Paso to do some sins with her. MacArthur said, how does God as you understand God, feel about your sins. He said, oh, it's very bad. He feels very bad. How bad is it, MacArthur asked. Well, I could go to hell. 
MacArthur said, you don't want to go there, do you? No, he said. Then why do you keep doing these sins? He said, I can't help it. I just do it. MacArthur asked him, well, is there any hope for you? He said, I hope, I hope God will forgive me. MacArthur said, why are you so special that he would do that for you? Why should he forgive you? I, I don't know. I just hope he will. I said, well, I know him. Or MacArthur said, well, I know him personally, and I'm telling you, he won't. That blew his mind. He said, you know God personally? What do you mean you know God personally? I've never heard anyone say they know God personally. MacArthur said, I do know him personally, and I can tell you that he will not forgive your sin. He can't look on iniquity. He's angry with wickedness every day, and he's going to cast them into an eternal hell. But, MacArthur said, would you like to hear some good news? And the man said, I would. So MacArthur explained the gospel to him, uh, gave him some material, and uh, directed him toward a church, and ended by saying, I can only pray that he followed through. This is what is missing in the mind of mankind. They cannot conceive of a God who so loves his people, his creation, that he himself would offer the sacrifice for the sins they committed. It is the gospel story. And as I've told you before, Christianity is the only religion in the history of mankind where the God of that religion paid the price, made the sacrifice for the sins of of their followers. Let me close with this. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. This is the message today in a nutshell. The message of the cross is foolish to those headed for destruction. But we who are being saved, it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who would believe. 
It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it is nonsense. But to those called by God unto salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Amen and amen. Through the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, because the world won't embrace that. That is our message. It is the gospel story. That's why there's such a great divide. That's why that V keeps getting wider and wider of biblical believers and the world. And this story is the only hope before their eternal destruction.